You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades. Light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Mike Petruca. Mike's written a few articles for us at MWI, and we're excited to have him on The Spear today to talk about an interesting combat mission he flew when he was in the Air Force. Mike, welcome to The Spear. Thank you. Happy to be here. Can you give us a a sense of your background, how you wound up in the Air Force and what you did there? Good question. So back in the day, there was a show on television called Baba Black Sheep and later Black Sheep Squadron. It was about a fictional marine fighter squadron uh, in the Solomon Islands uh, during the Second World War. And my grandfather used to watch it and I used to watch it and I decided then I wanted to fly fighters. So I was pretty, pretty monomaniacal about it. Uh, Got myself an Air Force ROTC scholarship for engineering, which I promptly flunked out of. But I ended up with very high Air Force officer qualifying test scores. So it converted into a flying scholarship, Uh, graduated and uh, went to undergraduate navigator training at Mather Air Force Base in Sacramento and graduated high enough in my various standings that uh, I got my first choice of fighter airplane uh, at the time, the F-4G Wild Weasel. What was the mission set of the Wild Weasel? So the Wild Weasel was a SAM killer. So basically the job of that aircraft was to search out and destroy enemy radar-directed systems, both missiles and guns. It's a support mission, so you're basically supporting the other aircraft that are hauling iron or doing whatever else they need to do by trying to keep the radar-directed air defense off their backs. And the the Wild Weasel program came out of the American experience in Vietnam, right? It did, actually. So in 1965, the U.S. Air Force lost air superiority over North Vietnam, not because of North Vietnamese fighters, but because of the North Vietnamese service-to-air missile threat, uh, specifically what we call the SA-2 missile system, which was a, a Soviet-designed uh, missile that that had a big warhead and a big missile. They were referred to as flying telephone poles. And so uh, basically the Air Force got a bunch of folks together, uh, wrote a quick contract, and in about six months built the F-100F Wild Weasel version, a two-seat Super Sabre with a fighter pilot in the front and an electronic warfare officer borrowed from 
Strategic Air Command in the back. And so one of the first EWOs in the back uh, actually coined our, our unofficial motto. The official motto is first in, last out. And the unofficial motto comes from Jack Donovan, who the way he explained it later said, let me get this straight. You want me to climb in the back of an airplane with a crazy fighter pilot who thinks he's invincible, look for surface-to-air missiles and shoot them before they shoot me? You got to be shitting me. And that's where the unofficial motto comes from. So that's uh, first Sam kill was Jack Donovan and Al Lamb on 22 December 1965. And they got it with the guns. By the time you get into the Wild Weasel program, how long has it been around and kind of what were the evol- what was the evolution of it? So we started out with the F-100. There were only six of those built. And after less than a year, five out of six of them were too bent to fly or had been shot down. So uh, that was the Wild Weasel 1. The Wild Weasel 2 was a, a, supposed to be a potted system on the F-4, and that failed. Uh, so Wild Weasel 3 was an F-105F and later the F-105G Thunder Chief. Again, two-seaters with Niwo in the back. Uh, and then at the very end of the Vietnam War, we started seeing Wild Weasel 4, which were modified F-4Cs, so the Mighty Phantom 2, which had a huge advantage over Thunder Chiefs because... Uh, phantoms burn. They do not explode for no reason. That was one of the things that, that you learned in, in flight training when you're transitioning the F-4. The Vietnam-era instructors that I had wanted you to know that phantoms burn. And the reason they wanted you to know that is because you could stick with a burning phantom long enough to get over the water or over Laos or until the flight controls burned through. So you had a better chance of being picked up. Whereas if you had a burning Thunder Chief, you were likely to explode at any minute and it was a different calculus. Uh, And then after the Vietnam War, what was built was the Advanced Wild Weasel, Wild Weasel 5, which was an F-4G, in which they took an E-model, which was the gun-equipped Phantom, they pulled out the gun and the ammunition drum, they added 52 antennas and 25 black boxes, and built with technology that is is like the late Apollo missions, um, they built the best radar warning suite ever mounted in a fighter, and that stands today. What was it like being a young lieutenant, strapping into Vietnam-era hardware, going out to hunt missiles that were trying to hunt you? So just strapping on the Phantom was freaking awesome. You know, it turns out I was the last American to get a 1,000 hours operational in the Phantom II. Um, and it was just a great airplane and a great mission. And you were just very excited to do it. Uh, the fact that the that it was considered a very high-end mission made you really feel good about it. And at the time, in order to get into the front seat as a pilot, you had to have experience in some other aircraft, some other tactical aircraft. Uh, the backseaters could come straight out of school, and I came in straight out of school. Where did you see your first operational deployment? My first operational deployment, uh, so after I graduated from the Weasel School, and I'm the you know one of the last couple of EWOs to graduate from the EWO School, I was in the last class, I uh, went from George Air Force Base in California and went to Spangdalem, Germany, and that was awesome. And I was burning to get mission ready as quickly as possible uh, because the time frame was the Gulf War had just wrapped up, so I'd missed it. There'd been you know this major air operation, and I'd watched it on CNN with everybody else. So I was trying to get ready as quickly as possible in case everything reignited. And that meant that less than six months after I got to Spangdalem, I was on my first operational deployment uh, down to Dharan, Saudi Arabia. 
were the missions you were flying out of uh, Daron? So when we started out in Daron, um, this was te- so I'm technically a Gulf War vet, but the reality is I showed up three days before the end of the period, uh, which you know went on till the end of the year, well past the end of hostilities. I uh, never flew a sortie in it. So what we flew in in there was mostly training sorties over Saudi Arabia and over some of the other Gulf states. Uh, with the occasional accidental incursion into Iranian airspace, it was great opportunity for a first lieutenant uh, to get some flying where there were essentially no airspace restrictions, where we had coalition partners and the Navy and other Air Force aviators every which way we could exercise easily. Uh, it was a great learning experience. But that first operational deployment, um, we were not crossing into Iraq. Uh, we basically stayed in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait or over the Persian Gulf. At what point did you start enforcing the no-fly zone? The northern no-fly zone came into effect pretty much immediately after the war, but the southern no-fly zone was delayed. Uh, So when I was there for the first three months of 1992, we weren't really flying in the no-fly zone. And then when I went back, uh, which was later the year, it was after... Um, the no-fly zone had been imposed. We actually, it was imposed hurriedly because of operations. Uh, and the squadron was actually an exercise up in Carib, Denmark. And we packed up, rolled, and went down, and, and I went to Saudi Arabia the second time. And so that is when we started flying the, enforcing the no-fly zone, and that's when we were flying over Iraq with a full load of weapons. First mission over Iraq with a full load of weapons. What was going through your head? God, this is way more boring than I expected it to be. I hope somebody comes up so I can shoot them. I mean, it was exciting, and I remember the excitement, but I also remember it being, you know, followed in the next couple of sorties by a little bit more boredom. Um, you know, it, that the sorties are long. Night sorties are terrible. I mean, they're terribly boring. Um, but at least you're over a rack, right? You feel like you're doing your thing. You're waiting for somebody to come up. Uh, and you've got other aircraft around that you're, you know, acting the escort. So I got to say it was mostly fun. At some point, you transitioned from the F-4 Phantom to the F-15 Eagle. When did that happen? So that happened at the very beginning of 1996. So the F-4G ran afoul of, of budget cuts because we were the most expensive squadron the Air Force had. Now, the reason we were the most expensive was we were the largest squadron in terms of ops and maintenance personnel, we were always deployed downrange generally to two locations, but we had the highest mission capable rate in the Air Force, but that didn't matter to the bean counting. So we were old and we had to go. And uh, our squadron commander, Jim Yukin, Yuke, he got a handful of strike eagles handed to him and said, give these to some of your EWOs. And uh, I got one of those slots. And so literally months before the F-4G was retired, I was off to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base to transition to the Strike Eagle. How long after that transition before you find yourself back over the no-fly zones? So uh, I went through the formal training unit in uh, 1996, uh, went to Royal Air Force Lake and Heath in England. It was mission ready pretty quickly uh, by August of 1996. And as I recall, I was back not in Saudi Arabia, but in Turkey. Uh, And I went back to Turkey either in late 96 or early 97. Earlier, when you were talking about that first deployment, you were saying you were hoping somebody came up, which I'm assuming means you got a radar hit. When did that happen for you the first time? 
The first time I remember it happening, it was probably an ambiguous signal. So meaning it was a form of radar energy that somebody was operating that looked like a threat system. And I remember it, it popped up over Kuwait. And this was during the phase when we weren't armed. And the guy pops up and we're about to head home. And I called on the radio working SA-3. And we immediately, you know, I'm a young guy in the back of the wingman's airplane. And uh, flight lead says, you've got the lead. And so uh, Dave Lucia and I uh, were just rooting around to see if that was a real signal. And it was a real signal, but it probably was not an SA-3. Uh, and it came down shortly after we didn't see it again and we went home. But boy, I remember that level of excitement. That's an adrenaline punch. After that initial adrenaline surge of the SA-3s, did the missions ever become routine? Um, I wouldn't say the missions became routine. Uh, and there were other events. So after 1995 was my last flight in Southern Watch. Thankfully, I was no longer in Saudi Arabia. But from 1994 on... I was flying in the northern no-fly zone for the Provide Comfort missions. And that was the first no-fly zone where the Iraqis reconstituted their air defenses after the Gulf War. So it was a little bit more interesting. Plus, it's a lot smaller. So we would go looking to see if we could see missile batteries visually. Um, in the F-4, when I got to the Strike Eagle, we'd looked in the, in the targeting pod. We would occasionally have an airplane come up and look like it was going to cross the line. Uh, some other people had got to watch them cross the line. I remember Brian Baxley and I had a guy, a fighter coming up towards the no-fly zone from Kiara West, which was the, the closest Iraqi fighter base. And man, we were the closest airplane and we had air to air missiles too. So we were on that guy and I had the initial hits on the radar scope and he gets close to the line and he, then he turns West and, and, doesn't break the line. We can't do anything about it. He's just playing with us. But again, just little events like that now and then uh, made it a lot more exciting. The other thing that unfortunately made the no-fly zone exciting, and I wasn't there for it, but I was there before uh, that, was the shoot-down in northern Iraq where two Air Force F-15Cs shot down a couple of Army Blackhawks and killed a bunch of Americans. And so that you know kind of illustrated the dangers of complacency um, just because it was not active all the time didn't mean that you could afford to slack off. You had to bring your A game. And it's tough to bring your A game day after day after day if nothing exciting is happening. Were there changes or procedures that happened after the friendly fire incident? Uh, yes, in that we re-emphasized there was a lot more emphasis on training. You know, what do the Iraqis have? What does it look like? What are operations? There was a lot more emphasis on coordination um, so that if there were helicopters flying around the northern no-fly zone, that uh, everybody knew it. And so we'd see that every day, you know, who was flying, how many, where they were going to go to. So we ended up with better plans as a result. Uh, we ended up with more intensive training as a result. But in that same time frame, the combined task force that was flying out of the north became less and less, I don't want to say aggressive, but more and more risk averse. And so it got to the point where after 1994, which was the last radar kill by an F-4G, uh, Pete O'Day and Tom Moe bagged uh, an Iraqi gun laying radar, 
with a harm missile in 94. And after that, it got to the point where the leadership at the combined task force wanted the flyers to avoid the surface to air missile threat and not go inside their weapons employment zones, what we call a WES. We kind of fell into an area where we ceded the entire center of the no-fly zone back to the Iraqis in terms of missiles because the leadership wanted us to stay out of missile threats. Did that last long or did the Iraqis you know, rear up a little bit? Well, the Iraqis definitely reared up. So in 1996, there was what we call a sambush. And that was either demon or devil flight, flight of F-16s. Uh, and there was an attempted ambush with an SA-6. And occasionally they would fire batteries of unguided rockets at guys. The, the Iraqis kept shifting things around and trying new methods because they really would have liked to shoot down an aircraft in the no-fly zone. But by and large, uh, because the aircraft were staying out of their reach, uh, that was that was going to be a hard lift for them to do. At some point, you got another radar hit, and it was a live one. What happened that day? All right, so let me set the stage for the event in question. The northern no-fly zone was north of the 36th parallel in Iraq. So just think of that area of Iraq north of the 36th as a rectangle. It's not, but think of it as a rectangle. And in the middle of that rectangle is the town of Mosul, which is a big Arab town. The upper right quadrant of the rectangle is basically Kurdish-held areas, and that's the reason the no-fly zone is still there, is to prevent the Iraqis from basically slaughtering Kurds again. And what we would normally go in is we'd go into the country and we'd set up a combat air patrol looking north and south. Well, just before, in December uh, 1998, the Clinton administration started an operation called Desert Fox because the Iraqis were not cooperating with the weapons inspection regime. And Desert Fox involved shooting a bunch of cruise missiles at semi-pointless targets that we thought would hurt the regime. But what it meant was that we stopped flying in the northern no-fly zone for more than a week. So by the time we come back in, it is 28 December 1998, we have not flown a sortie over the northern no-fly zone in at least 10 days, and that means we have not flown a reconnaissance sortie. And in that time frame, the Iraqis had taken the opportunity to shuffle their air defenses around. So when we flew in, we had a historical picture of where the air defenses had been, but not a great picture of where they were then. So the weather started out kind of crappy. Uh, with clouds underneath, you know, maybe clouds at 15, 18,000 feet broken up. And the British are the guys that provided our photo reconnaissance. So British tornadoes came in and we called them off. They was just, they weren't going to fly under the clouds because flying under the clouds of a known ceiling is a good way to get shot. So we called them off and we're just flying around and the weather's beginning to clear up. And a flight of F-16s kind of sticks their nose in to take a look. Now, the important thing that had happened as we went back is General Dave Deptula, call sign Zetar, is our our combined task force commander. He's a one-star. Uh, light gray guy, meaning an eagle driver. He was a, a planner during Desert Storm. And he said, hey, guys, you're going back into the no-fly zone. I'm changing the rules of engagement. If you are fired upon, you are authorized to return fire, which is a change. You know, the previous 
leadership had said, yeah, just run away. He said, nope, if you're fired upon, you're going to return fire. So with the ROE change, the F-16s now, uh, quite reasonably, these are our suppression of enemy air defenses. Those are the guys that are carrying harms. They stick their nose in to a weapons employment zone and the Iraqis decide to shoot. But they do not decide to shoot at the F-16s. They decide to shoot at the Strike Eagles. So the Strike Eagles have set up two combat air patrols, one northwest of Mosul and one northeast. So uh, it's Corps Flight, Corps 1 and 2 in the northeast. That's me with uh, Bat Cross in the front seat. And Bud Flight is in the northwest. And we're in a north-south oval, essentially, because uh, at the south, we're always pointing towards Kiara West Air Base where, again, the Iraqis had their nearest fighter base. So we're hoping a guy takes off like we are every other no-fly zone mission, and we get lit up. Um, and what we get is a flashing Circle 3 in the middle of our radar scope, which means that somebody has put a SA-3 missile guidance radar on the air. This is what the, uh, the system uses to guide um, some fairly lethal Mach 2.5 missiles. We get a flashing circle three in the middle of scope. We get a launch warning and we guess where it has to be. And we start uh, a slicing 4G turn to the northeast. Bat puts the airplane in a blower and we are supersonic uh, extending away or more accurately running away bravely from where the, we thought the SA-3 site had to be when the first missile comes off the rail. At the same time, um, our wingman does not have any radar warning indications, but Bud 2, who is in the northwest cap and nowhere near missile range, he also gets a radar warning indication, so he goes defensive and drops his external fuel tanks. So where we both made threat calls at the same time, I call it out, you know, Corps 01, Bullseye 330-26, MUD-3 defensive eastbound. Uh, which tells, hey, I've got a, uh, an SA-3 indication, here's where we are, and we're out of here. Uh, the Bud-02 makes a very similar call at the same time, so which of those radio calls you heard, depending on who you were closest to? If you were in the east, you heard my radio call. If you were in the west, you heard the other flight's radio call. So a moment of confusion as to who was actually targeted. The comms rapidly went to pieces because the F-16s jump in on the frequency and say, Sam, Sam, where? You're two o'clock. None of those are references that are of use to anybody else. Um, but we had probably uh, outranged the missile before it was fired. So the missile only has so much juice to get to where we are. That's the limit of its kinematics. And I think we had probably kinematically defeated the missile when it came off the rail. But they fired two. I saw the first or second one, I don't know which, detonate between our tails at some distance behind us and high. And uh, we were out of there, done. Um, and we're out of range, and now we get to uh, to put our rack together and see what we're going to do about this. And what we're going to do about this is we're going to make that radar explode. So I have all the mission tapes, and I, I reviewed this uh, many, many times. We basically gathered together, and our wingman had determined which of the previous lo locations that we had in our database had fired the missile because he's untargeted. He's got time to smoke a lucky and he figures out which 
location for the SA-3 battery had fired, and he gets that out on the radio. So I immediately cue the targeting pod, and it turns out that the SA-3 booster is significant in IR, meaning that cloud of smoke that you can see visually when the missile lights off, actually you can also see in infrared. So I'm looking at this cloud of smoke as, as if a guy had thrown a bunch of smoke grenades to mark his position for me because there was very little wind at the base. So now we know where the guy is. Uh, we call back to AWACS and ask for permission to attack. We didn't need it. And Bat knew we didn't need it. We were already authorized, but he's getting it all on the tape. Uh, so now we've got the videotapes running. He's getting all this recorded on the tape that we have clearance to attack. Uh, and so uh, we're ready to, to put a plan together, which is all put together on the fly. Let me give you a picture of who's playing. So we have AWACS, call sign Cougar. Uh, and there are battle management guys and our critical long-range sensors. They're also the only guys with SATCOM. So they can talk to us and they can talk back to the Air Operations Center. Uh, great guys to have around. Um, and they're basically watching our back the whole time we're in an air-to-ground environment. They're still scanning the air to see if there's any other threats. We've got four F-15C Eagles, the light grays. Those are the air-to-air -air guys. You know, not a pound for air-to-ground. And those guys are uh, going to be our shooters if we need to keep somebody off our back while we run an attack on the SAM site. We have four Strike Eagles, and we're carrying six air-to-air -air missiles, but more importantly for this purpose, we're each carrying a pair of 500-pound laser-guided bombs. So they're called Paveway 2s. They're an upgraded version of a weapon that was first employed in Vietnam, uh, and they're basically something that homes in on a laser spot that's reflected on the ground. So if you picture holding a laser pointing and putting it on the wall, okay, those weapons will guide at that laser spot on the wall. So you put the crosshairs on the target, you fire the laser, the laser bounces off the target, and the bomb says, I got him, and guides in on that. We had F-16s, and F-16s are our harm shooters, and they're going to help out. And then we had some Marine Corps prowlers, YA-6Bs, um, Marine Corps and Navy prowlers, and they are our jammers, and a couple of them also carry harms. So those guys are going to put out electrons to make hash of the Iraqis' radar picture while we run in. Because make no mistake about it, an SA-3 has an effective range of, call it, 12 nautical miles. Our bombs have a drop range of four and a half. We are bringing a knife to a gunfight. However, in reality, we're bringing four knives to a gunfight. And we're going to come in from different directions because an SA-3 is a fairly old system. I mean, lethal, and it's still lethal. That's... That's the system that an Allied force, almost a decade later, got an F-16 and the F-117. So it's not a system that's easily discountable. It's a nice little package of lethality, but it can only engage one target at a time. And after the wall came down, we got some SA-3s from the East Germans when Germany was unified. So I'd had the opportunity to operate several German SAMs under German instruction. Uh just to train. So I knew what the guy at the operating uh, console of the SA-3 had to do to lock onto one airplane, and he has to twiddle two knobs. He has to twiddle a knob to center up a crosshair in elevation, and he has to twiddle a knob to get us an azimuth. So he's constantly working two knobs to try and center us up. But he can only get one guy, he can only engage one guy at a time, and we're going to bring four to the fight. So we execute an attack where two aircraft, uh, Coors 1 and 2, are going to come in from one direction, and uh, Bud... 
one and two who are actually acting as cores three and four we're acting as if we're a four ship uh bud one and two are going to come in from another direction and we're all going to fly over the target at the same time this is something we briefed and we planned and we briefed and planned this every sortie this was just the first time to that we were able to bring the plan out of the barn we check our fuel uh, we coordinate the plan with everybody. We get approval from AWACS. AWACS does a roll call, making sure everybody's up on the frequency and they have the plan. And the plan is that the F-16s and the Prowlers, the Prowlers will put jamming on, and then those guys are going to shoot some harms in what we call a preemptive mode. Now, the harm is an anti-radiation missile. So the purpose of the harm is to suppress the threat. It's a really fast missile, and it's pretty smart. Uh, when you use it preemptively, what you're doing is you're putting it in the air to look for a radar and telling it these are the radars that you might want to look for. And the missile will home on the radar beam in the same way if you turn on a flashlight in a room full of cigarette smoke, you can see the beam all the way back to the flashlight. That's what a harm does for a radar. It rides that beam down to the radar antenna, and it's got a very nice little warhead with thousands of little nasty fragments uh, designed to trash that. So they're going to, the F-16s and the EA-6s are going to throw those in ahead on a certain timing because not only did we have the SA-3 battery that had shot at us, but we knew that there was an SA-2 battery longer range looking over and one or two other SA-3 batteries nearby. So we didn't know what their plan was, but we have to take into account the other missiles that are out there and the other radars that are out there, even if we're not seeing them. So by putting a preemptive harm in the air before we even get there, looking for a radar, what the defense suppression guys are trying to do is always to have a missile looking for a radar in the air while we're vulnerable. Rather than waiting for a radar to come up and shooting, they're putting themselves in a position where if a radar comes up, there's a missile already halfway there. So one of the things about the Strike Eagle is it's got the big old eagle nose and it's got a very good radar in the nose. Uh, what we call a synthetic aperture radar, which means we can make maps that look like a really, really crappy picture. Um, but you get used to it, and it was better than anything a fighter had ever had before. Uh, and because surface-to-air missile systems are made of metal, they reflect fairly well, and sometimes they will even re-radiate. Uh, so it's they throw the radar energy back as if they're a transmitter themselves. And the physics of that is too boring to go into, that, into but just suffice to say that it happens. And we're going to map them first. And we can take a high-resolution map out to some significant distance. And so we start mapping the site. And sure enough, I see a highly reflective spot, and I say, that's the radar. I put the crosshairs on the radar scope over and designate it. That tells the computer where it is. All of the other Strike Eagles do exactly the same thing, so each of our computers now know where the target is before we ever come within range. And now we have to find it with the targeting pod. So it's game on. We explain to the, the seed commander, the defense suppression commander, what time we're going to be there, and we're in. And we start pointing towards the target, and we're actually not flying a straight line. Because I remember how the I told you an SA-3 operator has to twiddle two knobs. Well, if you don't change your heading, if you just drive straight at him, he really only needs to twiddle one knob, okay? He lines you up in, in one because you're pointing straight, you're not deviating, and then he finds your elevation with the other. 
So we were flying an S-like path, a squiggly snake path, all the way in. And every time we reversed direction, we kicked out a bundle of chaff. Chaff is uh, a little uh, container, but it's full of essentially what are illuminized hairs. And each of those hairs reflects the radar, and there are thousands of them. So we're creating, uh, as we run in, little blobs of radar-significant goo on a guy's scope uh, as we get closer to make his life just that more difficult. And we get closer, and the timing is good, and we hear missiles get, go in the air. Uh, when you shoot a harm, you call Magnum. And if you're going to target the SA-3, for example, the guy calls Magnum-3. And so we're coming in. I didn't actually hear this at the time, or I didn't process it well, because I was busy. And one of the prowlers calls, I got a hung missile. His missile, he pressed the pickle button, and the missile had not come off the rail. Uh, and it's like, what? It's like, yeah, we got a hung missile. Okay, so now the defense suppression plan has just gone out the window because one of those missiles that's supposed to be in the air isn't. But his wingman was very fast to react. He puts a missile in the air, doesn't even make the Magnum call, just says, I got a shot in. Uh, and so they, they fill the hole in the coverage within a matter of seconds, and now we're coming in. We get to 12 miles, now we're in his range, and he's not in ours, and all I've got on the scope is a bunch of blobs. But blobs are good, you got to start with blobs. This is not an HD sensor, this is a 480 by 640 green monochrome on a 5-inch diagonal screen in front of my face. Uh, and I'm looking at it, and I normally, as a Strike Eagle guy, when you hit a fixed target, you get a photograph of your target. You fly out with a photograph, and you study the photograph before you take off, we didn't have photographs because we didn't know we were going to be going after this guy. We didn't even know there was somebody at this location. But I've got a radar map. And so I've taken the radar map and I've frozen it. And I'm actually flipping my screen back and forth and using the radar map as a picture. So I'll take a look at the radar map. I'll flick back over to, to my video image in the pod. I'll go back to my radar map. And my brain is taking a look at these two things so I find the thing I want. And I, I pick a target. And basically, we all check that the cameras are on, the master arm is on, we have the right weapons selected, and we come through 12 miles and we're not shot at. And we come through 10 miles and we're not shot out. Bat up front is watching the radar warning gear, and he keeps making the call. He says, yeah, we're naked, man. Naked means that there's nobody on the radar warning scope lighting us up. So a great call. We get to eight miles, we're naked. Um, at about six miles, I finally pick my exact aim point because if you're attacking a surface-to-air missile site with iron bombs, meaning just ballistic weapons, you have to kill him on the way in or he can shoot you in the back on the way out. So you have to get either the control van or the radar. And that's what I briefed all the guys. I said, here, you know, first priority is, is the radar, second priority is the control van, third priority the launchers. But if in doubt, go for your first priority. We've got to kill the radar. And at about six miles, I pick the radar, not because I have the resolution to see it, but because I know that the low blow radar, which runs the SA-3, is 38 feet tall. And I pick the object with the longest shadow. Uh, put the crosshairs over, start bouncing the laser off the guy. And sometime around five miles, Bat says, hammer's coming. Puts his finger on the pickle button. Four seconds later, two bombs come off. And we start in an immediate turn. Um, we actually turn after we release bombs. Uh, and we lays off the side, you know, uh, off the right front quadrant in this case, because you never want to overfly something 
you just made explode. Uh, we call it bomb activated anti-aircraft fire. And if something explodes, a bunch of guys will shoot straight up. So the key is to not be where they're going to shoot. And we've got the countdown and I'm feeling pretty good. The bombs are going to take about 34 seconds to fall. And it's 17 seconds. It's looking good. I'm confident I have the radar. The bombs are in the air. The laser's working. And I decide it's time to quote some Shakespeare. And so I start with uh, a little truncated uh, quote. I started out, prick us, do we not bleed? And then Bat interrupts and says 10 miles. And then I finish it up with rung us, shall we not revenge? Uh, and got that onto the tape, which got me chewed out later. And we just watched the numbers count down. And at T-impact zero on the scope, two bombs go off and kill the radar. It is fragments and nothing but fragments at that point. Two seconds after that, uh, Bud 2 puts two bombs on exactly the same aim point and uh, turns wreckage into more wreckage. And then our wingman, uh, Course 2, um, we think he actually lost... In all the, the flame and fire, we think his bombs lost the radar spot. But when he told the computer where his target was, he actually designated the control van with his radar, not the radar. And so, like I said, no wind day. The computer released on the right point. His pilot's parameters were spot on. And those bombs sailed all the way down from 24,000 feet without laser guidance and land on the control van. And so it's powder. And then... Uh, uh, Bud One actually could not identify a target positively, so quite correctly, he held on to his bombs. So this thing explodes, and that's it. I'm done. The next thing I say is, I'm outside, because now I'm looking for other threats, now that we've woken up all those other SAM systems. Uh, and we execute a left turn, and the other flight executes a right turn, and we're out of there. But we were all across the target in 17 seconds. So when you think that we started out 40 miles away from this target, came in, came in from different directions and had everybody's bombs across the target. First bomb, the last bomb in 17 seconds. That was some pretty good tactical flying. Uh, we come out because, you know, we're done with bombs. There's nothing else we can do that day. We leave Turkey. And as we leave Turkey, you go back into friendly airspace. You change all your codes and we call it fencing out. You cross the fence. That's the first time I take my hands off the hand controllers in the back seat, And I realize I'm shaking. I am swimming in adrenaline backwash, but because I was so focused and because I had a death grip on my right and left hand controllers, which is how I'm dealing with all the control features uh, needed to guide the weapons, that I realized that once I let up, I'm shaking. And it was freaking awesome. We flew back, and it's almost an hour back to Insulik. And we reported a successful strike, and we land the airplanes... And then we have the checks. So you have to de-arm an airplane. We've still got tons of live ordnance on. We have all the air-to-air -air missiles. So our, our weapons guys actually go through and put safety pins in all of our ordnance. It's called the de-arm. That's what you do immediately after you land and clear the runway. But one of the things they had at Insulik is they had a, a Turkish airman who went out there to count the bombs we brought back every day okay, to make sure we were bringing back the bombs. And now he walks to us. And we're minus two bombs. And he walks to our wingman, and he's minus two bombs. And he walks to, to Bud One, and he's got all his stuff. 
But Bud 2, not only is he minus two bombs, he's minus two fuel tanks as well. And he keeps walking back and forth like he can't believe his eyes with his clipboard and pencil in hand. Well, we're just laughing. And we taxi and, you know, shut down the airplane, taxi into the hardened aircraft shelters. General Deptula meets us at the airplane uh, and gives us congratulations and um, does that for each of the returning crews. And then to his, you know, endless credit, really, he gets the combat tapes. Uh, we dub them over on the VHS. He releases them to CNN, and then he takes them to all the maintenance and support guys so that they can see the results of their handiwork all the way at the pointy end. So end of a successful mission. Uh, as far as I know, it's the first Strike Eagle kill uh, of an SA-3 or a SAM of any type in the northern no-fly zone. Definitely... I won't say definitely, potentially the first shots of the Second Gulf War. And I wrote an article on that uh, once. It talks about the first shots of the Second Gulf War because that flowed into a continuing air campaign against the air defenses that eventually led into Iraqi freedom. The adrenaline backwash. Ooh. When did that finally subside? I have no freaking idea. Um, I was too pumped to be able to tell. Um I, I mean, I remember noticing because I, as I take my hands off the hand controllers and I start throwing a couple other switches to change codes, that's when I notice I'm shaking. Honestly, I have no idea when I stopped. Uh, I had stopped by the time we landed. Did anything change in the deployment after that point? Immediately. So General Deptula decided that um, asking permission was definitely too long and by the way we asked permission and got it back in probably 90 seconds he decided that was too long a time frame so he said that the flight lead has the authority to release weapons uh so that that was unambiguous and we were back in the no-fly zone two days later we didn't fly the day after we because of weather but we flew on the 30th and then Right after New Year's, he decided even that was too long a time frame. And he said, basically, if any element of the air defense network fires on you, you may reply on any element of the air defense network, regardless of whether or not that element engaged. So in this case, you know, had that ROE been in in force, we'd have still done exactly what we did. But what we could have done is also hit the other uh, missile sites that we knew were there. So we might very well, rather than gang up on the SA-3 with a full four ship, we might have put one of the two ships against the SA-2 and blown him to powder as well. Um, it isn't something we have to we had to deal with, so it wasn't part of our plan, but it became part of the plan later on. Did you enjoy considerable prestige and cachet with the squadron afterwards? Yeah, there was an element of short-lived fame, uh, you know, within the wing. But it's at the end of the day, it's just fighter guys doing fighter guys jobs, right? So the, the biggest exciting and the thing that meant the most to us is that essentially we bought that airplane. So uh, that meant that Bat and I got our names painted on the side and we got a Sam kill marking on the nose. That's the level of appreciation you want um, is, you know, 317. That's now our airplane uh, and would be for the next year, even though I only flew it like twice after that. Because you don't fly your own airplane. You fly whatever aircraft maintenance has available or whatever has the ordnance loaded that you need that day or any one of a number of reasons. But getting the SAM kill on the nose. And one of the things that I think changed for me personally was because I missed the Gulf War, you know, being in a, in a, a weasel squadron, I, 
I felt that the squadron was full of war heroes and I wasn't one of them. So I always had a bit of imposter syndrome, right? Right. Where, you know, maybe I didn't deserve to be where I was. I didn't fight in the Gulf War. This completely erased that. You know, I got a Sam the hard way with a bunch of other guys who all did it the hard way. Um, and it was just a huge kind of load off my mind that I didn't know was there. Is it? I was not just faking it. If it came right down to it, I needed to put warheads on foreheads. I could do that. You flew 150 missions, combat missions overall, over a variety of, uh, of theaters and variety of ter- terrain and, and threat systems. What would you tell that young aviator about to strap into the cockpit uh, for their first combat sortie? So um, a number of things. Uh, the first is you've got to do your homework. And that means that your job as a lieutenant is to become as good uh, a practitioner in that airplane as you can be. And that means that your ego, which is huge because you're in an environment where you had to have one to get to where you are, that needs to take a back seat and you need to shut up and listen for the first year because there's a lot of lessons you can learn through other people's mistakes. The second aspect of that is red flags work. Major force exercises work. The purpose of red flag, um, which came into play after Vietnam, was to put aviators in an exercise environment where they made all the stupid mistakes they were going to make in the first 10 days of combat, the first 10 missions, uh, that they make those stupid mistakes in a training environment where the outcome is not a fatality. May all your learning experiences be non-fatal ones. Because what we found in Vietnam is that the majority of fighter air crew lost were lost in their first 10 missions. And after that, the learning curve uh, flattened out a bit and guys had er learned some survival skills. So red flag works as it teaches you those survival schools. Um, And the last thing is um, you can't be casual about weapons employment. If you're going to throw weapons out there, you have to have done your absolute best to make sure that you're going to hit the target you expected to hit. uh, And that if the bombs don't go where uh, they need to go, that it wasn't a mistake that you made. Okay. It's a weapons failure or a system failure or something like that. You you really have to uh, consider the effects of your weapons employment. Star baby. I want to go back to the, the mission you've dropped. You're shaking. Are you sweating through your flight suit? Um, I was probably sweating, but I probably didn't notice. The cockpit's actually pretty darn cold because it's December. We're dressed for cold weather in case we have to bail out. Uh, So I don't remember sweating. And I get nervous before I cross the fence. So when we're out there, we've got gas. We're waiting for the time to cross a hostile border. Then I'm wondering about are all the pieces in place? You know, do we have everybody we need? If I study the target enough? You know, what do we not know that is going to bite us in the butt? Once we cross a hostile border, that all goes completely out the window. Uh, I'm very, very focused and I'm in the moment. And I can't say I don't have time for fear, but I don't remember it. I don't remember ever feeling fearful on the, you know, the run into the target or anything like that. I'm definitely mentally challenged in terms of you know, can I get this weapon onto the target? And what are the challenges to do that? But I'm not fearful. And so I think this is the response for the vast majority of guys is once you get into your combat focus, fears for before and after, not so much during. Because 
if you go back and I said this in an NPR interview many years ago, the fighter pilot's prayer is not, please, God, don't let me die. It's please, God, don't let me fuck up because the fear of failure is greater than the fear of death. You talked about doing your homework ahead of time. Did you know the target threat? Did you know the layout, etc.? For this mission, though, you didn't have the reconnaissance, right? The tornadoes had been turned back. Nobody had been over the target area in a week. What changed in your preparation for this mission in particular? So we just went in with, um, I think, a, a lot less complacency and a, lot, a heightened state of alertness because of the possibility of the threat. In terms of study, I knew what the Iraqis had. I'd known what the Iraqis had um, for years. Uh, I was familiar with how they set up decoys, where they typically set them up. As I said, I've t I'd taken the advantage of having German instructors with uh, ex-Soviet equipment to learn how that specific equipment uh, was used. And I understood the limitations of the weapon system, uh, including understanding that you know my radar was going to work well against a radar target that was operating roughly at the similar frequencies. So all those together, and that's a that's a level of experience. I mean, I was a senior captain. Uh, it was 1996. I'd been flying Strike Eagles. Or sorry, it was 1998. I'd been flying Strike Eagles for almost three years. I was an instructor in the Strike Eagle. Uh, and I'd come out of another fighter aircraft in which everything was harder. Uh, you know, everything was harder to do in the Phantom, except for the exception that the radar warning gear was so much better. Uh, and so all that knowledge base, you know, there was a lot of study uh, going in as to what could possibly happen. The other aspect of that is planning. I never stepped on a sortie where I didn't have a plan in place to walk home. Okay, I dressed for ejection. I carried extra survival gear. Um, I was serious about my evasion plan of action. I had studied the terrain. I knew where the Kurds were. Um, I knew what I had uh, in my survival kits and the ex that's you know, packing the extra stuff. Um, I knew what the weather was going to be like. So all of that was part of a planning process. It's not just about the tactical execution of the mission. It's about the other things that could happen, uh, good and bad. Mike, I want to thank you for your time today. As we were talking about, you know, a combat mission set that a lot of people have heard about recently, but don't have a lot of experience with or understand the nuances of. So thanks for your time for joining us on the Spear. Ah, you're welcome. I had a great time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.